0: In preparation for this interview, I saw my guest Connor Boyack, who is the founder of Tuttle Twins and the head of the Liberty. In preparation for this interview, I was watching a speech by my guest Connor Boyack, and he said, until I graduated college, I never had the time, the mental energy to focus on what I was passionate about. How do I help my kids avoid that same fate? That is a profound statement and something that really resonated with me about my own education. So what are the problems with modern education and what are some ways that we can fix it? My guest not only talks the talk, he walks the walk. He is the founder of the Tuttle Twins series. He's executive producer of the Tuttle Twins TV show. He is also the founder and president of the Libertas Institute, located out in Utah that has helped pass hundreds of laws to move society in a libertarian direction. He's also the author of 42 books and an investor in companies and boy... One day when I grow up, I want to be Connor Boyack. It was great to get to meet him and talk with him. And I think you're going to get a lot out of this conversation as he talks about how to create culture that will help move kids and adults by extension in a more libertarian direction and think about their education in a different way. Education isn't just sending your kids to school. It's helping them think critically. And my guest talks all about how he does that with his own family and how he can help yours. So stay tuned after these messages for my interview with Connor Boyack here on The Chris Spangle Show. We run on the value for value model here on The Chris Spangle Show and the We Are Libertarians podcast network. That means, do you get value out of the show? Do you learn something that helps you sound smarter when talking with your friends? Do you feel a little bit more connected to the world and inspired to do something a little bit differently? Well, then please give some value back. And the best way that you can do that is through our Patreon you can go to support or patreon.com slash we are libertarians and you can join our patreon not only do you support the program and the entire we are libertarians podcast network by helping pay all of the bills you're also going to get ad free shows you're going to get early releases sometimes months in advance in terms of episodes that haven't been released in the public feed yet you'll also be able to get the full archives the full rss feed of all the past episodes. And there's even a tier that you can come on the show or you can have your name mentioned every episode like I am about to do right now. Thank you so much to our $100 a month members, especially Vincent Picole Matthew Durbin, Jason Doolittle, Christy Avery, and our good friend Reinhold. Thank you so much for supporting us and we appreciate everybody that considers making a contribution today. Connor Boyack, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. You have you're very accomplished. I had stumbled across your Twitter maybe six months ago. I of course knew about the Tuttle Twins. I think having been a libertarian for 15 years, I couldn't have not stumbled across the Tuttle Twins. But now I just have little kids of my own, so I'm just getting into resources, and I think it's an amazing product. But I was more familiar with the Libertas Institute, which you founded, and you're the president of. What I was surprised about is how a prolific a writer you are you're on your 42nd or is it the 43rd book since uh, I book uh, just here.
1: this week our my 42nd came out the Tuttle Twins guide to true conspiracies so this is number 42 and I'm already working on three or four more it is a an addiction I don't recommend
0: it but I love it how do you write that much what's your day structured like that you're able to accomplish this much stuff
1: So I do a lot of travel and I'm always writing on the plane because it's great. You get a lot of white noise from the the surroundings, which kind of helps. And I'm free of distraction from people coming here in my office or whatever. Plane time is is often writing time. I also do writing retreats. So I was at our family's cabin this weekend uh, for four or five days uh, just to focus on making a lot of progress in writing and then I, I calendar time uh, every week, uh, at least a couple hours, uh, just to protect my calendar and make sure I'm just always writing. I find that having multiple books, that I'm book projects that I'm doing at a time is good because if I'm feeling stuck here or burned out here a little bit, I can move to something else and still feel like I have momentum and forward motion. So it's, it's a blast. I love it. It's basically, other than beekeeping,
0: it's my only hobby. Yeah, I saw on your website you're a bit of an illegal beekeeper, or what's the story with that?
1: <laughs> so, yeah, I'm an outlaw beekeeper. In my state of Utah, which ironically is the beehive state, <laughs> the bee is very incorporated into state emblems and iconography. And in Utah, they have this law that requires beekeepers. This is actually a law in well over half the state's they require you to register your beehives with the government. You have to tell them, hey, I have three hives in my backyard. Now, what's interesting about it, a lot of your listeners and you will relate to this, no one really understood before. The reason for this law, That the the people who push for this law, is contact tracing. If you remember COVID Mm. contact tracing where they could hunt down, hey, you were around this person and, and try and do all that. Bees travel for miles. They're very communicative and, you know, Communal creatures, and they have a disease called foul brood, which is highly transmissible. So, the idea is, oh, if we know that Connor's hives are infected with foul brood, we can call all the beekeepers within four or five miles and have them treat their bees. So, it's literally for contact tracing for this bee disease. But most people like me are just like, eh, I'm not telling the government about my <laughs> hives. You can pound sand. And so, I call myself, therefore, an outlaw beekeeper. <laughs>
0: So how did it, let's, before we jump into passion-driven education and kind of a positive vision education, where did the idea for Tuttle Twins come from? So I had started Libertas
1: in 20, late 2011, and at first it was just me. And here I am trying to change laws, build relationships, get media attention. And a couple years into it, I was making some good progress. I had hired one or two people. And I would come home, my my children at the time were five and three, and my five-year-old, almost six, my son, I'd come home at the end of the day and I'd be like, oh, hey, what did you do today? Who did you play with? What did you do? And they'd tell me their toddler versions of what they did. (laughs) But my five, almost six-year-old would start to reciprocate the question, dad, what did you do today? where were you all day? And I found myself wanting to share with him the substance of what I did, not just like, I typed on a computer all day, son. But like, how do you tell a kid that you're fighting socialism at the state capitol when he's barely six? And what does that even mean? So I went to Amazon. I was like, libertarian books for kids, property rights, children's books, nothing. This was 2013. And uh, so I was talking with a buddy of mine who he and I had long interacted in kind of Ron Paul circles and we had gone to Freedom Fest together and we had long sensed in one another kind of a similar frequency of of vibrating and we're like, we ought to work together. And so he and I started talking about this idea of doing a kid's book and he had kids young at the time as well. And so we teamed up on a book and we had no idea if anyone would buy it. We just, we actually launched at Freedom Fest 2014. And uh, a lot of people bought it and were like, hey, you should do another one and then another one. And then so it just slowly took off from there. We had no vision at the time for what it would grow into today. Uh, it's been transformational today. And now we sold over 5 million copies and we got a cartoon and it's just gone gamebusters, which is super exciting. Because then I think what's the future of our world if we're sprinkling all these liberty seeds in the rising generation? What do things look like a decade or two from now? And that gives me a little bit of hope.
0: Yeah, I, my wife is the oldest of eleven. She's homeschooled, and <laughs> quoting Veggie Tales is like as much as scripture. Almost, <laughs> it's those things have such a way of creeping in. And to have a pro-liberty, pro—it's political, but it, the, the, when you look at the titles, it doesn't seem like. I guess you're trying to indoctrinate in a good way, but having a vision that is sharing a, a piece of the culture that doesn't get covered in other places, yeah. I think is really cool.
1: Yeah. That's the idea. Like uh, the thought exercise I like to do is, especially someone running a think tank or other nonprofits or groups trying to, or the libertarian party or anyone trying to educate and spread these ideas. If I were to stop a, a gentleman, we'll call him Bob on the side of the road. And I go to Bob and I say, Hey Bob, here's this book. Let's pick on economics in one lesson by Henry Hazlitt. Great book. Very concise if I hand them that book, it was written over half a century ago, and I say, hey, this will teach you how the economy works. You can be, make smarter financial decisions and can help you in your work, et cetera. Uh, I'll throw it to you, Chris. What percentage would you say of, of individuals that I stop on the street like that would, number one, accept my book offer, and number two, actually go home and read it?
0: 0.7%, maybe 0.07%, okay. yeah.
1: Okay, all right. Yeah, I, I, I tend to give the same, similar answers. Uh, by contrast, if I go to Bob and I say, hey, Bob, do you have kids? Yeah, I got a 12-year-old, 10-year-old, eight-year-old, whatever. Awesome. Hey, do you think it's important for them to learn how an economy works and how to be successful in life and to make smart financial decisions? And, oh, yeah, I think 90% plus of people in that circumstance would say, yeah, I want that for my children. Hey, Bob, here's this children's book, this storybook. You want to read it together after dinner at night with your kids, and they're going to be able to learn some of these ideas. Oh, wow. Yeah, thanks. I've created value for him. I've built a relationship of trust with him. And I'm actually also getting to him with those same ideas, because like, we have a children's version of economics in one lesson, uh, the Tuttle Twins. And so I can get to him with the same concepts in simplified form, not by teaching them to him. But by going through him to teach them to his kids, I'm actually empowering him to look like a hero to his kids and to not have FOMO on their behalf, right? Fear of missing out. Oh, I don't want my kids to not learn everything they need to learn to be set up for success. So what we're finding is well over half of the parents who get our books are learning new things for the first time which I think is a sad indictment on the government school system of which most of these people are graduates that they never learn some of these basic economic and civic and political ideas. Uh, but that's the goal is these aren't really ultimately children's books. They're more family educational <coughs> resources so that parents and kids can learn together and have discussions together.
0: Yeah, I've done this show for 12 years and it's really an exercise in my own ability to learn and think and grow and change. But there was nothing like, I have a four and a half-year-old and now a three-month-old. There's nothing like having to clarify your values to a child's level and express those, but then also live those out and be an example. And I think mm-hmm. that is a powerful lesson. It just it changed the way that I do this. It changed the way that I do so many different areas of my life. Is when I had to start really thinking and clarifying my own values, they weren't just pieces to throw at somebody on Facebook anymore. They were actually living, breathing things. Why, in your estimation, do people not want to put that effort in on their own behalf, but their kids, they'll go the extra mile for their kids, but they don't want to take that extra an hour a day to read, maybe to grow themselves.
1: I watch Shark Tank religiously. And the answer to your question, I think, lies in some of the episodes I've seen where Mark Cuban and the other sharks will frequently make comments when the company is a like children's toy or product company or pets. And they'll often point out that consumers are, are very discriminating when it comes to themselves, what they'll spend money on for themselves. Oh, this is too indulgent. Oh no, I can't afford that, et cetera, et cetera. But when it comes to their children and their pets, they are not at all discriminating. They want what's best for these little creatures, human and otherwise. And so there's something about psychology where we are willing to sacrifice ourselves and self-sabotage or limit our own potential, but we very much have this almost instinctual desire To have our offspring or our pets just be set up for the most success possible. I can't speak to why that is, but I I find that to be a common trend where if it's also something that it's we're in a generation that increasingly is driven by sound bites and quick dopamine hits and Mr. Beast level uh, in your face, big, everything's big, everything's whatever. And having somebody sit down and read a 200 page nonfiction book, especially one that was written in the fifties, like economics in one lesson that not only doesn't have pictures, but uses multiple syllable words, <laughs> these longer English words, not written for an eighth grader. I think we, I think our generation is really, or today, you know, people today have really become habituated into an information delivery system or a style of information that is very simplified. I think the fact that our schools have been so heavily dumbed down and expectations of students have been just rock bottom means that we've not challenged these people and given them kind of the the muscle, like their muscles are atrophy, their intellectual muscles. They've not been exercising for years. They've just been sloughing it. And so I feel like there's a lot of these factors that all play in. The sad thing for me now is, okay, do we simplify to make it available to adults Are we feeding the problem? Are we part of the problem by communicating in the simplified level? Or do we communicate in a more intellectual level, recognizing that we're not going to have a broad appeal? And I don't know that it's either or. There's probably different audiences for different messages. But it's something I think about a lot running a think tank is, do I have to dumb this down to get more people to understand it? And how sad is that for our society?
0: Yeah, working in broadcasting, you cannot assume that anybody knows anything. I built an app for our radio show, and it's my own private joke is, I wonder how many people will ask me where the play button is. Okay, and I had five people ask where the play button is. It's just people are not paying attention. In preparation for this interview, I found your YouTube channel, and I watched a presentation you gave to a homeschooling group called Passion Driven Education, How to Inspire Your Child to a Love of Learning. And it was a very interesting talk. I'll put it in the show notes. People should definitely go check it out. It's more expansive than we'll have time uh, to uh, in terms of things to cover here. You go into the problems with education, why we have the system we have, and what are some options. And in that, you said, until I graduated college, I never had the time, the mental energy to focus on what I was passionate about. And then how do I help my kids avoid the same fate I had? So yes, the, oper- the internet offers us the opportunity to be distracted on a lot of things. It also helps us offload a lot of things that we don't need to necessarily know a million different things because we can look it up. You, I think you did such a good job in explaining how you want kids to avoid that same fate of being burned out mentally and not being able to focus on what they're passionate about. How does that look in your family? And what do you advise other families to do? Because you made, look, we don't get it right. But Hmm. how do you help your kids avoid that same fate of mental burnout? I think
1: part of it, okay, a couple things to say here. Number one is I believe that context has to precede content. And what I mean by that is if we try to share content with our kids or with students in a classroom and we say, oh, this is what's going to be on the test, or this is what's in the curriculum, or you have to learn this because I've decided to teach it to you today. If we're just sharing content, if that content does not have context for kids, if they don't understand why it's meaningful to their lives, relevant to their lives, if they don't understand the bigger picture about why this fits in, if they're not interested in the subject at all, the content, if it sticks, it's going to be pump and dump. It's going to be pumped in their head, they're going to cram for the test, take the test, and then dump it out of their head because it lacks stickiness it lacks meaning and so by contrast if if context pre- uh, precedes content think of I'll, I'll use i'll use my son right now he's really into pokemon if if pokemon is his context it's what he thinks about it's what he's passionate about he loves talking to his friends about it then my job as a homeschool dad is to think through what is the content that can align with that Pokemon context. So instead of saying, hey, son, this curriculum says you need to write an essay about the Enlightenment era, blah, 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 who knows, whatever. Instead, I'm like, hey, dude, I want you to write me a persuasive essay on which is the best Pokemon and why. Oh, okay. And he gets fired up and he goes to write that essay, not realizing that it's English homework or it's practice and penmanship. And I can give feedback on your essay here doesn't really uh, preempt the other arguments on the other side, you're in this essay just arguing for why you think this one's best. But what if I over here, what if I say this one's the best? You're not anticipating the argument. You know, what if you reworked this and then it's, oh yeah, that would be good because then I'd win the debate. And my. so everything is tied to that context. If I want him to practice art, then I'm like, hey dude, I, I want to hang a Pokemon poster in the wall. Can you draw me a poster? Or if it's math, I'm like, hey dude, let's pull up a Google spreadsheet And let's classify your Pokemon cards by category, by size, by whatever. And let's create a graph and learn graphing and learn spreadsheets. And let's use a formula to add them up and all these things. For him, it's not drudgery and it's not homework. And it's not this context-free content that he is being forced to learn. It's all in aid of what he already cares about. If there's a kid interested in rockets, let the kid watch dozens of hours of rocket videos on YouTube. He's going to go down rabbit holes learning about physics, learning about math. He's going to find himself on Khan Academy learning physics 101 because he wants to learn more about rockets. And all of a sudden, all this information becomes in service of a particular goal, a particular context. This is where our school system utterly fails, of course, because the individual context of a child is not taken into account. How would you? How would you have this mass warehouse schooling system that can accommodate and adapt to the individual context of each child. You can't. So you have the lowest common denominator. You suppress everybody's individuality. You homogenize them as a collective, and then you teach to the middle. And you're leaving behind all the kids at the bottom, and you're boring to tears the kids at the top. And then we have this massive mediocrity that we do today where things just just aren't working. The final answer I'll share here as to why I think some of this is that we educate kids entirely backwards in a very, I'll call it an inhumane way. The schools, the government schools especially, use what I call a just-in-case model of learning, right? Just in case you're a marine biologist 40 years from now, you need to memorize that the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell, right? Just in case you're a physicist, a a rocket scientist, you need to learn the quadratic equation by memory so that you can immediately say the opposite of B squared plus or minus. I don't remember the rest. And and so it's this just in case model where we say, oh, we don't know what your future holds. So just in case you're going to do this or that or that, we need to just cram all this information in your head because we don't know what's going to happen. That's inhumane. Why? Because none of us learn that way. We don't learn based on a just-in-case model. For example, if my refrigerator breaks down or my car breaks down, I never, I'll never i use the refrigerator example. I, I never think, gee whiz, I'm so glad that I read the owner's manual 13 years ago when we bought the, <laughs> the refrigerator for t- such a time as this, right? No, we just in time for when we need the information, we pull up a YouTube video. We maybe go get the owner's manual. We call the uncle who's super handy. We find the information that we need For a particular context that has arisen, maybe it's a curiosity we have, maybe it's an external circumstance being imposed upon us, but we have a context. So we gather the the content and then we go on our merry way to our next goal or our next project that we're doing. So it's this contrast between a just-in-case model, which is why I think the schools suck so bad, because none of us learn that way. It's a very artificial way of, of content acquisition versus a just-in-time model where we instead are teaching kids how to think, how to be resourceful, how to find the information they need, what critical questions to ask that would best empower them in any moment to identify what they need to do and what resources and information they need to gather.
0: Yeah, you talk in the talk about learning different languages. So I guess the theory in schools is that, look, we want you to learn a bunch of different languages so you have I don't know, your mind expands, and maybe you'll grab onto what you might like by being exposed to the language of calculus, the language of world history, the language of, but you talk about how that's actually, because I could hear somebody listening to your previous answer going, you're teaching your kids about Pokemon, teach them calculus. This, you homeschoolers, you don't actually teach them anything. What would you say to that person in the context of teaching them too many languages?
1: First, I would say that how what percentage of students who were forced to learn calculus in government schools remember any substantial portion thereof, let alone use it in their day-to-day life 20 years later? It's 0.00 something percent, right? Like it's just preposterously low. So the expectation that we need to drill every kid's mind full of the same information, or there's those books that we actually got early in our homeschooling career that I since through away. They're all called whatever. every fourth grader needs to know, Whatever. every fifth grader needs to know, whatever, as if the same, like every child needs to know all the same things and learn them in the same way at the same age. It's, it's just utterly ridiculous. Again, if, if someone becomes an artist, let's say someone becomes a sculptor and all they want to do uh, all day is be at the pottery wheel and playing with clay and sculpting. And that's how they spend their day. They, they may go on to be like a millionaire and create amazing works of art. Why do they need to learn calculus? They, not everybody needs to know all these things. And the people who do need to know them are going to learn them quickly. What do, if we force a kid to learn calculus, there's drudgery, there's resistance. I don't like this. I don't know why I need to learn this, etc. But let's say a kid, let's say my son is watching YouTube videos and he's watching SpaceX and he's really enthralled by rockets right? Uh, Maybe he develops an interest in that. He starts reading all these books about rockets, watching all these videos about rockets. And he thinks, hey, I want to do this as a career. I want to figure out when I'm a grown-up how to build rockets. He is going to learn calculus in 2% of the time required when you're just forcing all these kids who don't have the context to learn the content. But when my son in this example is motivated, because he has a a higher goal, he has his context. I want to learn how to build rockets. That calculus knowledge acquisition is going to be substantially accelerated. And also, it's going to stick way more than it does for all the other kids who are forced to learn calculus, but who are never going to use it. So I am an advocate for more child-led learning and following the interests of our children and building a curriculum and education around them because that's what we as adults do. None of us sit down and be like, oh, today I need to brush up on my ancient medieval philosophy from the 1400s because someone else decided I need to know this. No, we binge Wikipedia at two in the morning, going down rabbit holes, learning whatever interests us that day, or if our employer needs us to do something, we go figure out how to do it. Why don't we treat our kids the same way? They need to be adults in training and not sheltered in this weird artificial environment that teaches them precisely the opposite of the way that we all learn.
0: So is this the similar thesis to what your new book, Mediocrity, 40 Ways Government Schools Are Failing Today's Students, written with Corey DeAngelis. Is that along the lines of what's in the book?
1: This short version, yes. This book has a little bit of a story behind it. In there was a group that recently got together. They called themselves the National Commission on Excellence in Education. They went across the country about, for about a year and a half surveying teachers, parents, reviewing curriculum, kind of town hall meetings, trying to learn and say, what's education in America like? And they recently issued a report. This report is called A Nation at Risk. And in that report, they warn, and I quote verbatim, that America's educational foundations are being threatened by a rising tide of mediocrity. And that if a foreign government had intep- had attempted to impose Upon America, the very mediocre educational performance that now exists, we might have viewed it as an act of war. As it stands, we've allowed this to happen to ourselves. So that was their report. Now the reveal here is that I fibbed a little bit. This 18 month review was not recent. They did not recently publish this report. They published it. Over 40 years ago, April 26th, 1983, it was the Reagan administration that published this report. So the 40th anniversary was this past April. And on that exact date is when we published our book, which is subtitled 40 Ways Government Schools Are Failing Today's Students. So there's a a chapter for every year that it's been since that report. And the thesis that the idea here is almost to be a red pill for parents who are still like diluting themselves. Like, oh, I went to public school and I turned out fine. Or it's not as bad at my kid's local school as you see on the Libs of TikTok account. on all these like justifications that people use to continue to enroll their children in these mediocre, sub-mediocre institutions. The goal here is like to have machine gun fire and just barrage them mm-hmm. with all these negative examples of just how sub-mediocre things are today. So that They will make a better decision for their kids and one that will provide them a better education.
0: All right. So you've done that. You've convinced some folks, right? But their kids are in public schools right now and they want to transition or they want to supplement or they're ready to pull the trigger, right? What are like three books or websites or resources that you would recommend saying, look, I've made this decision or I know I need to step up my game in educating my kids. Where would you send that parent?
1: The first one would be Peter Gray. He wrote a book called Free to Learn. He's a psychologist, and that's in my top, easily top five books that I recommend to parents. The importance of play for our children and how children learn through play and how our education should be modeled around play. It's a crime that the government schools hardly give any opportunity for recess Because the social interactions and the modeling of behavior have far more learning potential for kids than sitting in military rank and file in the classroom and and being propagandized. Free to learn is number one. Number two is John Taylor Gatto's book, Dumbing Us Down, The Hidden Curriculum of Compulsory Education. This was my red pill early on as to why I struggled so much in what I call the public fool system, where I attended in, in San Diego as a kid dumbing us down john was a like almost 30 year public school teacher in new york trying to work within the system to reform it and ultimately failed quit and went on a public speaking tour and wrote books saying talking about how broken the system is the third one uh, is by carrie mcdonald Uh, it's called unschooled uh raising curious well-educated children outside the classroom i think is what it's called and the idea here is that um what, what true education looks like. Uh, unschooling is a scary term for people. A lot of parents cling to curriculum and standards and processes and things like that as a crutch. But unschooling is basically child-led learning. It's taking your child's interests and curiosities. It's much like I describe in my book, Passion Driven Education, that we put our children, like the, the silly example I share, maybe I shared this in the video you watched, is if you've ever let your kids sit on your lap driving a car in an empty parking lot. and you're obviously sitting there, you got your foot by the brake to be ready. But your child is holding the steering wheel and turning it left, turning it right, and, and you peek a peek to the side right to catch a glimpse of, of their reaction. They are just ear to ear smile. They are elated that they have control of this vehicle with inappropriate boundaries, right? So my argument is that their own life, that's an analogy for their own life. Too often we have children be the backseat passengers of the vehicle that is their own life. And we are driving and we are braking and we are accelerating and determining which direction to go and how fast. And they are just a passive participant in the back. By contrast, if we let kids be at the driver's seat of their own life with appropriate guardrails, Right, So that they don't make any significant mistakes, don't harm themselves or whatever. But if we let them control the direction of their own life, what they learn, what they want to spend their time doing, it is so empowering for them. It is so meaningful for them. The activities that they do are their own. They value them that much more. They lean into them way more than when they're just being passively forced upon them. And so that I think is the benefit with things like unschooling or passion driven education, putting our children a little bit more in the driver's seat, giving them a voice about what they want to learn, how they want to study, where they want to spend their time. And then as a parent, just being there to guide and support along
0: that journey. All right, Connor Boyack, shameless self promotion time. Do you have anything you'd like to promote?
1: Tuttle Twins. We're always running sales, but the big thing that we're doing right now is this brand new book, Tuttle Twins Guide to True Conspiracies. This one just came out very recently. And this is for teens and adults, frankly, as well. It covers 20 examples of true government conspiracies and acts of massive corruption and this was a very fun book to write, by the way. A lot of stuff in here. I'll Maybe I'll share a, a very brief one. It's uh, one of the ones I like to share is Operation Northwoods. Mm-hmm. So this was during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And the Joint Chiefs of Staff of the United States Military and the Department of Defense together proposed in an official report to JFK a plan to kill Americans, blame it on the Cubans, make it look like Cubans did it, so as to anger the American populace to get them to support going to war against the Soviets in Cuba. JFK shot it down, and that's the only reason why it didn't happen. But had he approved it, had it happened, I'm sure for decades, all of us as kids would have learned how these horrible Cuban Soviets bombed Miami and shot down this plane, and that would have been the official story. The document's since been declassified, and so we now can, you can go read on Wikipedia, Operation Northwoods, you can see the document itself. So these are the examples in our brand new book, and the goal is to help teens develop critical thinking to help them develop skepticism of authority by seeing, oh, here's 20 examples where we've been lied to and deceived in the past. There are many others that we could have included in the book, Uh, but the point is let's learn from the past so that we don't repeat it in the future. And so we got a lot of, we got American history books, we got our cartoon, we got all kinds of books for toddlers, teens, and every age in between. But this is the fun new hot one right now, which is at tuttletwins.com slash conspiracies is where folks can find this one.
0: All right. We'll make sure to put links in the show notes. Thanks so much for joining. Thanks for having me. And thank you for watching here or listening on The Chris Spangle Show. We really appreciate it. If you got something out of this, please share it with your friends. That is the best way that you can help content creators like myself, like Connor, spread the message and do the work. All right. Thanks so much for listening here on The Chris Spangle.